like to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to join me in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah is a personal account. Nehemiah is his memoir. He's telling us about how God used him to do something significant and unique, which, by the way, is an expectation that God has for every one of us. It's been said that there are three kinds of people in the world, and that may be really selling it short, but here they are. There are people who make things happen. There are people who watch what's happening, and then there's the majority, people who wonder what happened. Nehemiah is a make-things-happen kind of guy. At this moment in time, as he's pinning these early chapters, the city of Jerusalem is in shambles. It's in constant threat and danger from the surrounding enemies because the walls are completely broken down. The average dweller in Jerusalem would settle on this as a philosophy in life. It is what it is. But just because it is what it is does not mean that it should always remain that way. Every inhabitant in Jerusalem had grown accustomed to the fact that walls are in need of repair. That gates are burned with fire. That we are in constant distress. They'd become accustomed to those deplorable conditions. Living a life and in many ways hardly even noticing. The nation of Judah seemed content to live a complacent life satisfied with the status quo. Most Christians are exactly the same. One writer said this, a Christian is never satisfied with status quo. And sometimes, he wrote, it takes a stranger or a strange scenario to see sharply what has been softened by familiarity. It sometimes takes a stranger from the outside, say, some 800 miles away from Jerusalem, with a fresh set of God-burdened eyes to come and show you the deplorable condition of your dwelling place because you no longer see it Because of familiarity. Isn't that the way it is with believers? Some of us, if we were to be confronted with the truth about our spiritual condition, our walls, as it were, were broken down. We are in constant danger from attack by the enemy, and we live in deplorable spiritual conditions. But because we have grown so accustomed to it, we no longer see it as dangerous or deplorable. We no longer see our condition in need of fixing. And one thing that I am certain of, the longer that we are believers, the more savvy we get at believing. And what I mean by that is we become experts at checking external boxes. I don't necessarily just mean in the sense of standards of separation, but we become experts at how to maintain a facade. We know exactly how to emote. We know the words that we're supposed to say and the actions that we're supposed to carry out and the timetable that we're expected to keep. And because we become so good at that, sometimes our walls are broken down and the gates are burned with fire and the conditions of our life, spiritually speaking, are deplorable. But since it's all we ever know, we settle for the status quo and we're content there, but not Nehemiah. Remember that Nehemiah has heard from Hanani about the condition of Jerusalem and his heart is broken. 
800 miles away as he serves in the capacity of being a, a, a cupbearer for the king. He begins to pray and mourn and fast and weep about God doing something to salvage the city of Jerusalem so that his name would be exalted. Nehemiah has a burden birthed in him to do something about Jerusalem and so he prays for four months and in four months time Artaxerxes the king opens a door of opportunity and as we studied last week Nehemiah lays out some major prayer requests and every one of them is answered. And now he has taken this journey to Jerusalem with all of the necessary provision. And we'll pick that up in verse 11. And I'll encourage you to read this story. That's what it is with me. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, I and some few men with me. Neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night, by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates whereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain, and to the king's pool. But there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass." Then when I up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did. Neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then said I unto them, ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite and Geshem the Arabian heard it, They laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. I love that passage of scripture. You say, I'm glad you do because I didn't get anything out of it. Hang out for about 20 minutes. Ish. Ish. Four months of praying and fasting and mourning have given birth to a vision from God for the life and purpose of Nehemiah. It is to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He has undertaken a lengthy journey with his military escort and his diplomatic immunity and his position as governor of Judah. As he arrives at Jerusalem, I am stunned when I read in verse 11, so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. It strikes me as odd that a man with all of the provision and all of the authority that Nehemiah had and all of the clarity of mind would arrive in Jerusalem and then sit still for three days. And he, in his own account, tells us, and I did not tell anybody what I was there for. 
I didn't tell them about my purpose. I did not tell them about my plan for three days. And then without any explanation, he tells us when everybody went to sleep, I got on my beast and I took some men with me and I viewed the southern part of the wall of Jerusalem. Not even the full circumference, just the southern part. And I saw enough when I saw the southern part to know what God wanted from me. Silence for three days. Even as he rides and views the walls, he does so under the cover of night. Why? I think it is beautiful to understand. That Nehemiah has already laid out the precedent for us that he prays first. And four months of prayer and fasting and mourning and weeping gave birth to an incredible vision and incredible opportunity for God. We might term that an open door. And now that he has arrived on scene, he waits three days. I do not think that he was hesitating. I think he was investigating. I don't believe that he was wasting time. I believe that he was earnestly praying. You know what we're guilty of a lot? We want to hold God's hand until he opens a door of opportunity for us. And when he opens a door of opportunity for us, what we tend to do is let go of God's hand and start running. And we get ahead of ourselves and we end up faltering in that which God wanted from us. And what Nehemiah is doing is he is saying to us, I not only held on to God for the open door of opportunity and the provision, I also held on to the hand of God for the enacting of the plan and the doing of the work. We get ahead of ourselves and we fall flat on our face. When we let go of God and start rushing in, I would have arrived in Jerusalem vastly different because I'm not nearly the Christian that Nehemiah is. I would have wanted them to understand who exactly I was and why I had arrived. I would have wanted them to comprehend all of the material that I brought with me. I would have wanted them to understand my authority. I would have arrived on the scene to let them know that I was there to be their savior, not Nehemiah. It intrigues me as I read through that he's riding around at night. Now remember, they didn't have highway lights. I would say flashlights, but now that's just a cell phone light. Do you even know what a flashlight is anymore? Probably under the light of some flickering torches, he heads out in the night with a burden of God upon him, and he's viewing the southern portion of the walls, and he tells us pretty explicitly the gates that he passes through and the views that he had of the wall. He gathers enough in the dark of night to get a clearer picture of what it is that he needs to do. Even in verse 13, when the word viewed is used, it means to carefully observe. It was used in the medical profession. You would probe the wound to see the depth and severity of the wound, but not that only to see what was necessary to mend the wound. He is looking and he is praying. He's talking to God and he's seeing through God-burdened eyes. I love what one commentator said. Nehemiah saw more at night than the residents saw in the daytime. Because they had their few softened by familiarity. Nehemiah was looking at it through God's eyes and that changes everything. 
He saw enough in that passage to formulate God's plan, and I want to keep hitting that. This was not Nehemiah going about seeing how he would organize it. This is the burden growing and the vision gaining some fire. He is seeing this as God wants him to see it. Vision is vital. The Bible tells us where there is no vision, the people perish. Understand that vision for a believer, knowing what it is that God wants, is essential for survival. It's spawned by faith, it's sustained by hope, it's sparked by imagination, no doubt, and strengthened by enthusiasm. But this is not just a builder looking around, it's greater than sight. It's deeper than a dream, it's broader than an idea. You have to walk and talk with God to get it, and that's why most people don't have it. Nehemiah for four months gathered this burden, the entire trek to Jerusalem and three nights there. He wants to know what God wants. So many people live in the midst of deplorable spiritual conditions unknowingly. So many people live without purpose. So many people feel like their existence is pointless and futile and they're discouraged and they have no joy and they're beat down and fatigued because if you want to know what God wants from you, you must walk with Him and talk with Him and that takes time and effort and energy and most people fall short. But this is the birthing of something incredible that God will use Nehemiah to do. And I see there must be some time between verse 16 and verse 17 because the night has ended and he's called a meeting. And he's going to make his presentation to the people. He's going to announce his intentions. In verse 17, Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in? How Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. And I know at the end of this speech, the people say, let us rise up and build. Now you may be like me, I don't see enough motivation in verse 17 in the first part of 18 to have people who have lived in the midst of deplorable conditions for decades living in an idle existence, all of a sudden decide they're riled up to be a part of rebuilding the walls, which they will do under threat of their own life. How is it that Nehemiah helped them to rise up in heart? How is it that he encouraged them, put heart in them to do this work? I find everything we need in those two verses. And I note this, in verse 17, he just gave them an honest evaluation. He said to them, do you see the distress that we are in? Look around you, Jerusalem lieth waste. Have you noticed the gates are burned with fire? His honesty is refreshing. He doesn't sugarcoat the problem. He doesn't start his motivational speech by ignoring the problem and telling them, hey, it's not all that bad. He addresses the reality of their inactivity. And in effect, he says to them, that's long enough. It's disgraceful that nothing has been done until now. You better act. And no one likes that kind of confrontation, do they? especially savvy Christian people. Don't confront me with the truth. Just let me tell myself I'm okay. Some of my bad habits have become so ingrained that I don't even notice them as bad anymore. I have become so inactive, so complacent, so accustomed to the status quo that I don't want it to be addressed. 
back in August, for the first time in all of my life, I grew a beard. Everyone notices my beard. It's as plain as the beard on my face. Most people notice the gray in my beard, which they don't know I put in it so that I look more pastoral. I dye it gray. Duh. On occasion, because I am a beard rookie, I will get a little bit of food lodged somewhere around my mouth and sometimes amazingly far from my mouth. And my wife will give me a look like this. Now, she never like smiles at me. It is always a look of disgust like, you're a vile animal. Don't ever touch me again. Don't bring that face near me. Get that out of your beard. Now, you would think that in that moment, my response would be, thank you. I love you. Let me remove this from my beard. But I think, I want to throw this at you. And by the way, I've noticed split ends. I want you to know that I got this out of my beard and it was only there because you looked at me and I twisted my head and it got stuck in my beard. Why do I want to fight back when someone is saying to me, hey, you got something in your beard? Because there's a sense of embarrassment, a little twinge of shame, and a little bit of flesh in me. And every Christian can identify. Because if I looked at you and I said, hey, champ, your walls are broken down, man. You don't walk with God. Your first reaction and inclination is to say, no, dude, everything's okay with me. No, you're in danger. You don't get in the word, and you've allowed sin to gain a foothold, and you're in desperate trouble. All of us think to themselves, I'm ready to fight back. He simply gave them an honest evaluation, and every one of us hates it. Because you know there was someone there who was thinking to himself, I cannot believe this outsider is going to talk about our walls like that. The gate near our house, it's not that burned. But he's already told us there are some places near the wall where the beast that I was riding on, the way was impassable. There was so much rubble. And this is how they lived. An honest evaluation. Then I want you to notice something that is so small, but it's beautiful. He says in verse 17, Then said I unto them, Do you see the distress that we are in? How Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. He involves himself personally. You know what I find unfortunate? All too often, a Christian moves into a tragic situation like Nehemiah was faced with, and they begin to point fingers. And it sounds a little something like this. Look at the mess you live in. I cannot believe you've allowed this to take place here. You people should have started rebuilding these walls the moment you finished with the temple. You've put the city at risk. You've put your families at risk. You've brought shame to the name of God. Well, good news. God brought me here to crack the whip so that you get the job done. Now hustle up so I can get back to living in the palace. Now I'd venture to say there's no scientific data. About 70% of preaching sounds like that. But not Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes and he identifies himself with the problem and then get this, he involves himself in the solution. We, us, we. If you want to discourage somebody, if you want to take heart out of somebody, make sure they know their life is in ruins and just tell them they're a mess. It works every time. 
Make sure they know they're a dirty dog. Make sure they know they don't measure up and then just walk away from them. Just make sure you expose their failure. But if you want to encourage, if you want to have someone rise up in heart, you say to them, man, we're in a mess. How can we together get out of this? All through this, I keep coming back to the reality of ownership and accountability and the reparation. In effect, what Nehemiah says is, hey, the walls are broken down. The gates are burned with fire. We are in distress. We've got to rebuild these walls. Now hand me some tools and let's get to work. An honest evaluation, which may be hard to hear, gives birth to the reality where he includes himself in the solution and he identifies himself within the problem. Accountability greatly matters. And then he invites them to join in the work, but there's something so distinctive about it. In verse 18, he says, I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me. He also told them what the king said to him. And after hearing all of that, After seeing his faith blessed, after hearing that God had turned the heart of the king and that he had been blessed beyond comprehension, they say, let us rise. Let us rise up and build. And they strengthened their hands to this good work. Did you realize that in there, Nehemiah is not asking them to join him in the work? He is asking them to join God in the work. Why the distinction? Because Nehemiah knows something. That a work like this is going to encounter constant opposition. He grasps that he may not always be there. That he is faulty and prone to failure. And he wants people not to work with him on his cause. And not to identify with him in the work. But to comprehend that they are doing God's work. And when he references the good hand of God on the building effort, they are going to be more apt to press on because it's God's work. God had been good to him. God had prepared the way. God will be here with us. God wants us to do this. This is what God wants. He pointed them to what God told him. And then I love this thought. He had faith in the people. He didn't fear the people. He didn't belittle the people. He didn't dislike them or hold them in contempt. He led them. He believed in them and he let them know that he believed in them. And it is when they came to the reality that we're not rallying around Nehemiah, though he may be God's implement in this place. We're rallying to the cause of God. They said, let us rise up and build and strengthen their hands to this good work. What would give the work any inherent goodness that the adjective good would go before work. It is the good hand of God. It's God's work, therefore it is inherently good. Now, I could keep wasting time on language. I'm so good at wasting time and using words. But I want you to realize this. It's a good thing that he made it clear it was God's work because immediately opposition rears its ugly head. And may I say to you, it always does and it always will. Do you remember that as we read of his prayer and the amazing answer, when we got to verse 10, we heard of Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant. First time we ever meet his enemies is right after the prayer request is answered. Now we get to these verses, and in verse 19, we see Sanballat and we see Tobiah, but it's like the enemy has upped the ante because there's a third guy there, and his name is Geshem. 
Don't you come to the reality that once you take a step, the opposition gets stiffer? And Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem are kind of bywords within Scripture, and you have them in your life too. And then in a way, it turns into a middle school playground. In a way, they are just bullies. Because here's what the Bible says. As the devil moves in to oppose the work that is going on, here is their first attack. They laughed at us. They laughed at us. And laughed at us till the point that it hurt. You know, whenever anybody says, I will arise and build, Satan always replies, then I will arise and oppose. You can count on it. When you decide to build anything for the glory of God, whether it's a godly home or you're going after a pure mind or you're trying to have honest character, whatever it is in your life where you desire to honor and glorify God, then everything that opposes God will oppose you. There is no opportunity from heaven where there is not equal opposition from hell. It's a fight. And they laughed at them. They mocked them and they ridiculed them. That public ridicule was intended to produce embarrassment. Intimidation intended to produce fear. Now this will build. But I want you to understand something. The reality is fear and embarrassment have worked wonders for centuries keeping Christians from doing or saying anything for God. You remember middle school. You remember how awkward you were unless you're one of the chosen few. You remember what it was in those isolated moments to be laughed at and how painful that is. And I will say to you, there are yet full-grown men and women in office environments who will not say anything about Jesus Christ for fear of being laughed at and ridiculed. It's worked for millennia. Sometimes it's the only opposition the devil has to throw your way and it's enough to silence you. And when that's not enough, they'll, they'll stiffen and become openly unfriendly or threatening. But they laughed at him. I try very hard to stand in the shoes of Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. And I look at this ragtag group of misfits rebuilding this wall, and I look at the deplorable condition of the wall, and we'll get to it in the next chapter, but in all sincerity, the people that are rebuilding the wall, we, we hear of jewelers, perfumers, priests, And we all know men of God can do no manual labor. And the guy in charge, most recently on his resume, is I was a cupbearer for the king. So if I'm on the outside, I'm looking at this mega task and this ragtag group of misfits, and I'm thinking, you? You losers are going to do this? Who do you think you are? And that's enough. Because we always feel like the few when we forget that what we're doing is actually for God. I love Nehemiah's response. It's awesome. We get it in verse 20. He said, then answered I them and I said in effect this. This is God's work. We are God's servants. It will be accomplished by God's power. And then he goes right at the three of them and he says this. You have no portion here. That's You get no property in here. You have no right, you have no claim of authority in this place, and you have no memorial, you have no place of worship here. In effect, he clenches his fist and he says, the God of heaven is with us, he's going to give us success, we will start rebuilding, do what you like, it's not going to stop us, you are usurpers and you have no right in this place. 
Did you notice what they also said to him in verse 19? Will you rebel against the king? You know, the king said, you can't build these walls. Are you going to rebel against the king? Now, here's where I am so struck by Nehemiah's humility and his prayer life is evidenced. You know what I would have done if those jokers would have said to me, the king said, you can't do it. I would have said, hold your horses. Gone to my satchel and I would have said, you mean this king right here? Who said I have diplomatic immunity? You mean this king who's given me timber? You mean this king who sent me with a military escort? You mean this king said no? But he doesn't do that. In effect, what he says is this. You mean this king? I don't work for Artaxerxes. I'm not here because he said, yes, Artaxerxes works for the king of kings. I'm not really concerned about his approval. We're here because God told us to be here. That decimates man-made religion. And it points us back to all that we're doing is for God. I'm much more carnal and immature than Nehemiah was. But he realized these battles aren't fought with earthly weapons. And he told them point blank, you have no right here. This isn't yours. This isn't your calling. This isn't your place. Listen, when we face resistance, it has no real right to our lives. We don't have to be weak. We don't have to be failing. We don't have to be unable to function. We're called to be free. Fear has no place in your life. Paul said to the Galatians, Stand fast. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. We don't need to be slaves anymore to lust and greed and excess and chemicals and materialism and jealousy and anger and bitterness or whatever it may be that is controlling us. Paul said this, I will not be brought under the power of anything. You have no right here. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. I will not be brought under the power of it. You have no right here. This is what God wants me to do. There is no necessity any longer to serve sin. We're dead to Christ, with Christ to sin. Whenever I read this, I think, how is it that a group of people who had sat idly by and accepted the deplorable conditions of their existence ever get to the point where they tackle a task like this and I see they rose up in heart. Would you bow your heads please and close your eyes just for a moment. What a simple study. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.